One of the great things about this morning is I'm not dressed like Rob. And, uh, and he's relieved that he's not dressed like me, so it's a good, it's a win-win. We still are individuals, and uh, it's a good thing. Last week, Rob and I pretty much were identical, except I think I'm better looking. Um, okay, there's an argument. We'll, we'll talk later. You have a little bit of a biased opinion on that. So, but, uh, but hey, um, as we start this new, this new series... Uh, there's, there's going to be a lot coming at us, and uh, it's my hope over the course of the next number of weeks as we talk about the kingdom of God that, that we understand that it's, 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 it's complex, yet at the same time, it's essential for us as we seek to be the type of people that God calls us to be. And when you spend time with anyone, and in a matter of minutes, you will find this out, out very quickly what their priorities are in life. If you spend time with a parent of young children, and within minutes you will probably hear about sleepless nights, their most recent sleepless nights. You will probably hear about recent sicknesses that their children have experienced. And you'll also possibly hear, if you're in there long enough, if you're talking to them about meals or anything, you'll probably also hear from them saying that they'd love to have a meal that doesn't serve Happy Meals, right? If you're around a person of young children. If you're around a parent of a teenager, you're going to probably hear about how they spend too much time on the phone, how their answers always seem to consist of one syllable, or if they want to stretch it to three syllables, which is, I don't know, and parents get exasperated with those types of things. If you're around a teenager for an extended period of time, you will hear about the chaos that is overwhelming their lives. You'll be amazed at the amount of information that they can text in a matter of seconds, and you'll continue to be amazed at how quickly they can move from topic to topic and stay focused somehow, some way. You spend time with anybody who's fallen in love with someone recently, and at their first love in particular, you'll hear story after story after story about how significantly wonderful this individual is and how their life is so much better because they're with that person and how they have their life all planned out now and everything is going to work out just fine. You spend time with people who don't like their jobs, within minutes, within minutes, you will hear about how horrible their boss is, how horrible the, the working conditions are, and how their partic- this one particular coworker makes their life just miserable. Spend time with a grandparent, what are you going to hear about? Grandchildren. People talk about what's important to them. People talk about that because it's a central truth in life that people discuss things that matter to them. And that holds true especially with Jesus Christ. The first and foremost topic that Jesus Christ had in all, of his, in all of his speaking was about the kingdom of God. I want you to think about that for just a few moments. Of all the topics that he could have discussed, this one, the kingdom of God, overwhelms all of them. He could have talked about injustice. He could have talked about marriage. He could have talked about uh, parenting. He could have talked about money. He could have talked about sex. He could have talked about influence. He could have talked about all these different topics that we tend to gravitate towards, yet Jesus Christ did not do that. He talked repeatedly about the kingdom of God. And the sad truth of the matter is this, is that, and I have an apology to make, 
and it's this. In my 30 years of, of serving as a pastor in various contexts, I haven't talked very much about the kingdom of God. And I know that I'm not the only one that hasn't talked much about the kingdom of God. Listen to preachers, listen to, go on the internet and, and listen to people, what, they're, what people are preaching and what people are proclaiming, and you'll hear very little talk about the kingdom of God. It's a sad truth. It's a sad truth because without understanding the kingdom of God, all these other topics that we gravitate towards so quickly get out of whack. They get imbalanced very quickly. I believe that Jesus understood that very well. Now, granted, he's Jesus. He understands things very well, no matter what the topic is. But he understood this, that talking about and living out the kingdom of God will influence the way you look at everything in life. It will influence the way you look at your marriage. It will influence the way you look at relationships. It will influence the way you deal with money. It will influence the way you deal with, with these bigger world issues of hunger or whatever the case may be. Jesus Christ understood that the kingdom of God was essential for his people to understand. And without an understanding of the kingdom of God, they would go astray. They would go awry. They would get passionate about things that may be important, but were not of first and foremost importance. I invite you in your Bibles to turn to Matthew chapter 4. And, and a little, uh, real quick, not just a quick aside, but a real quick comment here. In Matthew's gospel, you will hear Matthew talk about the kingdom of heaven. It's interchangeable with the kingdom of God. Many commentators believe since Matthew was writing to a Jewish people and they didn't want to say the name of God out loud, that he changed it to heaven so he, would, he could skirt that issue or address that issue a different way, just so you know that. So here we go. We pick it up in Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 12. It says this, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Father, we pray now as we come into this time of looking at your word, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we would see, open our ears that we would hear, open our minds that we would understand, and open our hearts that we would be transformed to be the people that truly desire your kingdom. Holy Spirit, do the work, and may no one hear anything that I say, but may they only hear what it is that you want them to hear, that you need them to hear. And in all of this, Lord Jesus, may you be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen. John the Baptist goes to prison, and Matthew uses that as a marker. The reason why is because he's telling us that something has happened. A change is about to occur, a significant change that the people have been longing for. 
God's people have been longing for his kingdom to come over and over and over again all throughout the centuries, and they were urgently wanting his kingdom to come now. They were done waiting. They were done waiting for it. And and as you read through the Old Testament, you come to find this out. And one of the themes that you will observe very quickly is this, is that God's people struggled over and over and over again with God's authority all the time. And it cost them dearly. It cost them dearly. Read through the Old Testament. Most of it is, most of it is instruction to God's people who have gone astray or to, to warn them to not go astray. And this cost came at a high, high price. And I need to set some historical context so we can understand why what Jesus says here is so significant. Beginning in 722 B.C., a portion of God's people was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. About 150 years after that, the rest of God's people were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So over the course of 200 years or so in that area, God's people are now being ruled by someone else. And over the course of that time, there were other, or, other kingdoms that came into play between that time and Jesus' time, the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, a few others, and then finally the Romans. The Romans come into play a little while before Jesus Christ came on the scene. God's people daily would pray, may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come because these people, these people are ruling us with oppressive measures. Sometimes these kingdoms would force God's people to bow down to other deities. At other times, they would tax them at the rate of 80% of all their earnings. It was not easy for God's people under the kingdoms of these foreign territories or or foreign kingdoms, these pagan kingdoms, frankly. And so people prayed, God, bring your kingdom. God, bring your kingdom. God, bring your kingdom. And yet it seemed to simply bounce off the walls. It seemed to go nowhere. And then an event happened. An event that was significant happened at about 167 B.C. There's a Greek king by the name of, and I hope I get this right, Antiochus Epiphanes. And this man, this king, was bad news. He crossed lines so brazenly that the Jewish people, that God's people, had to rise up. But he crossed lines boldly and brazenly. And the reason why I keep using that phrase, crossed lines, is because the phrase, to draw a line in the sand, comes from an altercation that Antichius, and, and, whatever, Epiphanes, that guy. I'm messing with his name. It comes from an altercation that Antiochus had with a Roman ambassador. Epiphanes was advancing and with his army and they were about to go into Egypt. And this Roman ambassador stops him and warns him to not go any further. Epiphanes was so arrogant and so bold. He said, I'm going to pretty much go wherever I want, do whatever I want. I am the king. I can do as I please. And this Roman ambassador looked at him and said, the Roman Senate really doesn't want you to go any further. 
And he says, well, I will go and talk to my own people and I will make that decision. The Roman ambassador proceeded to bend down and draw a circle in the sand around Epiphanes. And the Roman ambassador looked at him and said, the Roman Senate strongly urges you to not advance any further. I need an answer before you cross this line in the sand. Epiphanes said, okay, I'll withdraw. Case done. So we have that line crossing the line in the sand. That's where that starts from. This Epiphanes guy, he was bad news. He was an arrogant man, and that happened in 168 B.C., and so perhaps still stung from that, that humbling experience, and Epiphanes went on a rampage, and he made life all the worse for the Jewish people especially. Jews were then ordered to worship Zeus rather than Yahweh, and he didn't stop there. He then raided the temple in Jerusalem. He stole its treasures. He set up an altar to Zeus. And then in 167 B.C., he did something that nobody thought would ever be done. He slaughtered a pig on the altar. In Daniel's book, we're told about the abomination of desolation. That is one of the episodes that, that is discussed there. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. You're going to see a picture now, and this is a, there's a passage on there, and I, I don't think many of you can read it, but it says this, and this is from the, verse of, uh, the book of First Maccabees, and it's in the Apocrypha. It's, not, it's, it's there, and this is what was going on at that time. It says this, Then on the 15th day of Chislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege upon the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding cities of Judah. The books of the law which they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned him to death. The Jewish people had had enough. The desolating sacrilege was a statue of Zeus with the face of Antiochus Epiphanes, and it was erected atop of the altar of burnt offering. After sacrificing a pig on it, he then proclaimed himself to be Elohim. He then cooked the pig in the temple and poured its broth on the sacred Torah scrolls. You're one of God's people. There's a kingdom that is telling you your ways are no longer allowed. You're one of God's people. You've been praying for God's kingdom to come. And you want it to come now. The people had had it. And so, it was the start of the Maccabean Revolt. And over the course of the next number of years, this Judas Maccabeus guy rallied troops and they would do all types of things and they, they, they tended to get God's kingdom and people believed that God's kingdom was now present, but after a few years, it all fell apart. 
The reason why I'm bringing this up is because the people were desperate for God's kingdom. The people were desperate for something to happen, for something to change. And so we come to this place, John the Baptist in John chapter 3 verse 2 says this, he, he was preaching and he said, Repeat, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. People now say, listen, it didn't work with the Maccabean revolt. What are you trying to tell us now? And, the, and John the Baptist says, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And by the time Jesus arrives, the Jews, understandably, longed for his kingdom. Over the course of this series, we're going to be putting together a diagram piece by piece. And right now, where we are as we talk about this, and, and we're going to see this diagram real quickly, you have creation, and then you have what is called this age. This age, and so this age is dark, this age is difficult as Jesus Christ comes in. But here's something, there's something interesting going on in, in Matthew's gospel, and he does a great job of this, and we pick it up in verse 14. He says this, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, and he leads us with these words, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew is saying, I need to take you back to this prophecy. I need to take you back to one of the many prophecies that Jesus Christ will fulfill. I need to take you back because so often we forget that God's kingdom is in the shadows at times. When it gets really dark, it's really difficult for us to remember that God is still there, that God still cares, and the people un did not understand that God was with them, that, that God was there, and the prophets repeatedly said, please get right with God. And as you get right with God, you'll realize he's right there. But here's the issue that the people struggled with. The messages from all the prophets, not just Isaiah, but Daniel and all the other ones, they were messages that needed to be heeded, and yet the people said, we can do our own thing. We've got this under control. I invite you to turn back to Isaiah chapter 9, and look what Isaiah says there. And he says this, where this prophecy comes from. And this is part of what they were hoping would happen. We pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 9. The people, on the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. 
the people were ready for God's kingdom. Matthew shares this passage. He shares this prophecy from Isaiah, and he says, I'm telling you, Jesus Christ has come. The people wanted to have the rod of the oppressor shattered. The people are done with having burdens that weigh on them. The people are ready for a government that upholds justice and righteousness. The people are ready. But are they really ready for God's kingdom? You see, in Isaiah's day, the people wanted God to do great things, but yet they simply said, we can figure this out on our own. And one of the truths is this, is that without God's kingdom, darkness becomes a reality. You have the Epiphanies, you have other people like Antiochus Epiphanes who do amazingly grotesque and brazen things and they completely disregard what God is calling us to do as people. And yet God says, I have a way of doing things and our response is, we can handle it on our own. When God's kingdom is ignored, darkness becomes a reality. The days were dark, but yet people would say to me today that the days are dark. I read this the other day, and I thought it was a pretty, did a pretty good job of explaining this age in which we live, and, and here are some of the comments that I picked up from it. It said this, it said, the people are bold and arrogant. People blaspheme in matters that they do not understand. They are like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. And get this next one. They revel in their pleasures while they feast. They have eyes full of adultery. They never, get this next one, and tell me if this isn't true today. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable and are experts in greed. I mean, this author understands our situation really well. Then he said this, they mouth empty, boastful words, and they promise freedom, yet they are slaves of depravity. That's a pretty good summary of what's going on today, isn't it? Those words that I just told you are from the book of 2 Peter in our Bible. Things were dark back then. They're dark today. But what's fabulous is this, and you'll notice this in, in this prophecy. Look at the last part of verse 16 of chapter 4. It says this, The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Here's what's great. God doesn't need things to get less dark for him to get involved. God's kingdom penetrates the darkness. No darkness overwhelms God. God will get involved, and I love the hope that comes from this prophecy, that a light has dawned. 
a light has dawned, and, and what that light means is this, is that it might look dark now, and we look around and look around us all the time, look around at how dark things are from a political standpoint, perhaps for many of you an economic standpoint, perhaps for some of you a family standpoint, things are dark. Yet God's kingdom penetrates the darkness with light. That's who he is. And so, the, so Matthew brings this up and he shares this prophecy. And then we read verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. His kingdom is no longer going to be in the shadows. His kingdom is now on the scene. God's kingdom has arrived, and because God's kingdom has arrived, things are going to change. But the problem is, is that people had an idea of an earthly kingdom, of a monumental kingdom, of an oppressive kingdom, that God was going to finally allow them to do what they wanted to do to their enemies, and that was this, overthrow them. Jesus Christ says, repent. Repent. Because you don't understand what my kingdom's all about. God's kingdom always means this, and this is significant for us as we go into the rest of this series. God's kingdom means God's rule in one's life. It's not about building some type of fort or anything like that. It is about God working in such a way that he gets involved in one person's life. There's a reason why God compares his kingdom to a mustard seed or yeast in the dough. It starts small and then it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. The Roman Empire at this time was massive, but God's kingdom would soon overwhelm the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire ruled with oppression, yet God's kingdom was going to come on the scene and did come on the scene, and it is going to expand by grace. You see, God's kingdom invades this age, and when Jesus Christ says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, the Greek there is talking about the kingdom of God is not just near, it is now. When Jesus Christ shows up, Things are going to change. He brings a kingdom that brings change. He brings a kingdom that brings hope. He brings a kingdom that brings joy. He brings a kingdom that brings peace. Yet you'll notice the way he starts it, and he says this, repent. The question is, what do they have to repent from? Oftentimes we see the word repentance and there's something in there that just says, well, this is because you're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, but there's nothing here. He's simply saying, repent, the kingdom of God has shown up. The kingdom of God has arrived. And I believe this, that we have a pretty weak view of what it means to repent. For some reason in our lives, we think that repentance means manage sin a little bit better. For some reason, we think that we can still flirt with things and we can still do this or do that and that we really don't understand what it means to repent. Repentance isn't about flirting. Repentance 
is about turning around and going away. Holding a grudge is easy to do. Repentance means forgiveness. Being greedy, easy to do. Repentance means generosity. Being self-consumed is a natural thing to do, and all of us struggle with it. Repentance means serving others. It's not about how can I manage my self-consumption. It is repent and serve others. It's not about how can I get more and more stuff for me. It's a repenting and looking to give in generosity. Jesus Christ is telling all of us, just as he told the people back in that day, your life has to change. Repentance means change. Repentance means putting me on the throne of your life. He takes the throne of our lives. That's what he's talking about here is that you're going, you need to repent and you need to place me on that throne. And there's, a, there's this idea, and I want to confront it right now, a shared throne is always a catastrophe. Always a catastrophe. A number of years ago, there was a bumper sticker that was very popular and it was very cute and catchy, and it said this, God is my co-pilot. People thought it was great. People thought this is really cool and people got all excited about it. But yet, it was completely based on an unbiblical understanding of what it means to have God's throne, God's reign in your life. A co-pilot doesn't make the last call in a plane. The pilot does. Not the co-pilot. The co-pilot is there. It's important. But the pilot's the one who's guiding the plane. But we get so full of ourselves and we think that we have it all figured out that isn't it nice, God, that you can be my co-pilot and we'll just travel through life together. I get to call the shots. Just glad to have you here as my buddy. Have we not learned? Have we not learned that when we have control of our lives, what ends up happening is a catastrophe? When we decide to not allow God's reign to rule in our lives, we're setting ourselves up for a catastrophe. Let me say this very clearly. There is no one on this planet there is no person in history, not even you yourself know what is truly best for you in your life outside of the one who knows you better than you know yourself. The only one who can reign in your life in a way that brings hope, peace, love, joy, courage, strength, patience. He does not want to be your co-pilot. He wants to be the pilot of your life because he knows precisely what needs to happen in your life.
to have your life be all that it needs to be. Jesus Christ didn't come on the scene saying repent because we don't have anything to repent of. Jesus Christ came on the scene and said repent because he knows without us turning to him, we're in trouble. Over the course of the next number of weeks, as we continue unpacking what it means to be kingdom of God people, the question that we have to answer ourselves all the time is this. Who reigns in my life? Is it God or is it someone else or is it me? Because when Jesus Christ came, he came to invade the darkness and his kingdom invades the darkness of our lives and he says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And he lights our lives up so that we can live life fully for him. That's what it means about the kingdom of God, his reign in our lives. And so I ask you right now before we pray, who is on the throne? Who is the one reigning in your life? Father, we pray now. As we reflect on these words and what it means to have you reign in our lives. Lord, are there things in our life right now that we need to repent from? Are there things in our lives right now that are taking us down a path of destruction, of catastrophe, that we think we can manage? that we think that we can control on our own? Are there things in our life, Father, where we are reigning and we have the throne and we say that we don't need your help? Have mercy on us. Have mercy on me. Because your kingdom has come. A light has dawned. And that light pierces the darkness. May you pierce the darkness of our lives with your reign in such a way that we say, Lord, I don't want you to be my co-pilot. I want you to be my pilot. I want you to be the one who has control of my life. Have mercy on us for those times where we have decided to take back the reins. And may we turn to you and say, your kingdom come in my life today. Your reign come in my life today. Holy Spirit, do your work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and the worship band's gonna come back up and as they get plugged in and ready to go, I wanna remind you that this God that we serve, his kingdom is not one of oppression, 
but his kingdom is one of freedom. His kingdom is one of forgiveness. His kingdom is one of grace. And if you have questions and you'd like to talk about what it means to have God reign in your life, to have Jesus Christ reign in your life, track me down. There will be some elders over here in this area that if you have questions or concerns or you need us to be praying for you about something, or perhaps today is the day that you say yes to putting Jesus Christ as the king of your life, as the one who reigns in your life, we'd be more than happy to talk to you there. So let's sing these next couple songs.